Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, 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 look what the cat dragged in. It dragged in episode 48 of Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill. This, well, we're nearly at the 50. Um, and we're still in the first season. I swore that season one would not become season two until we emerged from all of this, like some bright, shining, heavy metal chrysalis or whatever, however that works. Um, but we haven't. So we are still in season one. Uh, what am I going to talk about today? Well, we can consider the last three episodes to be some sort of trifecta, some trilogy of um, gloom and grumpiness and crankiness and political and social and cultural observation. And my, 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 if some people aren't a little bit tetchy at someone poking them with some ideas and opinions. Um, it's pretty clear that, to be honest, we lean into the mythology of rock and roll and lean into the mythology of punk rock and the um, opinions of musicians, outspoken musicians in the 70s and 80s, and we romanticize it. But yet, post a little picture on Instagram which may ask people simply, what do you think about freedom? And they all get their undergarments in a bit of a twist, as someone would say in the Victorian age. Um, it's very odd. It's very odd to me, having grown up on reading magazines in the 80s, which probably if you went back and sifted through, you would find lots of choice quotes from Mr. Mustaine or Blackie Lawless or whoever else. Or go back to the 70s to the Iggy Pop, Sid Vicious and Alice Coopers or whoever. Yet, as I said, 
uh, make a podcast, which is in theory putting an hour of your own thoughts out into the ether in a in a world where every single little sentence can be micromanaged into an aggression. Um, and people, before they've even heard what you have to say, get tetchy at the title. Of course, the title, It Is Our Duty to Offend, Not Your Right to Be Offended, was, I suppose, an affectionate um, doff of the cap to George Carlin and other comedians like that. But how strange certain sections of the heavy metal audience react to even the words liberty and freedom in 2020. It's very strange. In the 1980s, the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center, led by Tipper Gore, wife of um, presidential candidate uh, turned environmentalist um, Al Gore, um, tried to have the Dirty Dozen banned, which included Wasp and Twisted Sister, and they were right-wing religious conservatives. But yet now the people who get up in arms um, seem to be get offended by more or less anything, or whatever you want to say. It's just too easy to say, the duty to offend. But um, the kind of people who would just get... Um, what is the word? I don't really like to use the word, but triggered at the title of a podcast by a band for somebody they don't listen to and haven't listened to the last 47 episodes for any context. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to note. When did heavy metal become so conformist that people couldn't manage to navigate the opinions of somebody they disagree with or think they disagree with, with which seems to be more important, actually, than filtering through what you've said or even listening to or debating or maybe taking in information and then going, well, I agree with someone, I disagree with others, but I respect that person's um, or support that person's right to freedom of speech. The more I mention freedom of speech, the more I seem to get in trouble with certain people, or at least maybe that's just my incumbent madness speaking to me. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, two important dates are today, and that is March the 15th and March the 17th. So I'm going to try and walk the line between those two dates um, with an explanation of uh, the background of what the 15th means, the Ides of March, and not just the first song on Killers by Iron Maiden, which oddly enough is also on the Samson album Head On, I think. I think it was written by the drummer, Thunderstick, who was in Iron Maiden um, before Clive Burr, I think. Um, there you go. There's a piece of heavy metal trivia right off the bat. Um, you can have that. Take that. You've got that's guaranteed, that fact. Um, you won't leave with less than that. Anyway, so between the 15th and the 17th of March, and then I'll talk about some nonsense that comes out of my head in the 16th. Um, because the 15th of March, beware, beware the Ides of March. Caesar, who is it in the press that calls on me? I hear a tongue shriller than all the music. Cry, Caesar, speak, Caesar is turned to hear. The soothsayer, beware the Ides of March. Caesar, what man is that? Brutus, a soothsayer bids you beware the Ides of March. I'm, of course, available for voiceover work. Just hit me up. So the year is... 44 BC um, and it's the reign of Julius Caesar this is the Ides of March beware beware the Ides of March um, 44 BC is the end of the um, the civil war within the uh, 
Roman Empire. Um, Caesar has been in Gaul, putting him to the sword. He even has visited, become one of the first Roman um, leaders to visit Britain. Um, and he is returning after conquering during the Civil War and he's marching on Rome. Um, and his only one opposition, the main opposition, Pompeii, is... Uh, is skulking around the shadows of Rome, but has learned of Caesar's march on Rome to reclaim the seat of his power and has fled. And over the last couple of years, Caesar has introduced many, many social reforms. Um, he's vetoed the state Senate's power, or vetoed the Senate's power. He's declared himself dictator for 10 years. Um, he's allowed himself to only pick the magistrates of the court. Um, and he has neutered the power of the Senate. Now, one of the things I think that is very important to understand is that um, Rome became a republic in the 6th century BC. They overthrew the uh, king Tarquin. Tarquin. Um, and the idea is, the idea that rex, which is the Latin word for king, rex is like an, an ultimate insult in Roman society at the time because it's like an affront to the idea of the Republic. So let's discuss a little bit about what the Ides of March means and maybe you can think of a couple of influential movers and shakers who might seem a bit Caesarian in the modern age. It's too easy to maybe say that orange man fell up but there's a few others right now who are profiting from the situation we are in. Hmm, who knows? Well, one of the important things that Caesar did was that he fixed the calendar. The calendar that we all live by um, was something that was um, created by Caesar, uh, mathematicians and astrologers of the time, because previous to our 365-day calendar, the calendar was 355 days a year. Um, and it, every, it kept slipping from the, uh, drifting from the solar years, drifting from this kind of system of uh, solar navigation that it was supposed to be, I suppose, well, once the 365-day calendar came in, that it was fixed to. So randomly, um, the Pontifex Maximus would insert an extra month just into the middle of the year and it would throw off all of the, Romo the Romans, the Ramones? Wow, yeah, throw off the Ramones. Um, throw off all of the Roman festival days. They would end up celebrating Harvest Festival in April. And Anyway, when Caesar returned from the Civil War, one of the first things that he did was fix in place this new calendar. Um, so it's just, just as an aside, um, I think it's quite interesting to note um, some of the things that the, Romo the Romans, the Romans, God damn it, that the Romans introduced that we still live by today. And you'll recognize many of the words, um, the Latin words that we still live by. But as Caesar came back to Rome, uh, leading up to those fateful Ides of March, he had, I suppose, began to take on the outward effects of the dreaded word rex or king. He began to honor himself. He, he, he declared himself imperator, censor, and then subsequently dictator for life. Um, we know a few of those um, in a few countries that are at the heart of what's happening now. He built himself a golden chair. Um, looking at you, North Korea. Um, built himself a golden chair and began to take on godlike attributes. 
he had a statue built in the Pantheon of Kings. Touching him in public became a blasphemy. He began to build temples to himself, ordaining priests to himself to, in a sense, make his own, make the worship of him into a religion, which I suppose when you look at the cult of personality that has to surround um, many of the isms of our last 100, 200 years, you begin to see that these are not new things within society. These are um, movements. Um, these are actions of the dastardly powerful that go back thousands of years. So Caesar was setting about, I suppose, in his own way, creating the cult, the religion of the Caesarian religion, if that's the right use of the word. Um, he declared that he was allowed to wear red knee-high boots. I know what you're thinking. But it would seem that if you had asked a Roman child in the year 50 BC, um, how would you define the vainglorious appearance of a king, they would say. It's his red knee-high boots and his red cape. Um, he began to dress in king's garb, declared himself godlike status. He began to disrespect the senators. They met him in the forum, granted him all of these honours. He half returned some, didn't want others, barely looked up from his, um, barely looked up from scrolling through his phone. That is, an un that is an interesting thing if you think about it. Sorry, I'm rambling now, but um, we are asked on a phone, for example, with Instagram to scroll, to scroll up. And what is a scroll? But that is the pre-book, I suppose, papyrian um, way of um, the way that things were written, that you would have gone from top to bottom on a scroll rather than from left to right and turned the pages. So strange enough, social media on your phone has turned you back to a place of uh, 2,000 years ago in um, your actions in relation to what am I talking about? You know what I'm talking about. We scroll now. We don't read like a paper left to right, which if you think about it, the scroll captivates your attention uh, much easier because you cannot just go from left to right, move your eye line to the other, turn the page so quick on the information. You almost have to see it. Hmm. Anyway, right. Also the practicalities of having a phone. What am I talking about? Right, so our boy Caesar was dissing the senators um, and Rome was a very flattery-based economy and I think that that is something that still remains in Latin societies, in Mediterranean societies. It is, if I can say, the, um, the sort of mildly, not juvenile, not juvenile language, but sort of baby language and the sort of continual um, flattery within social circles about how great people may be but yet behind their back talk a little bit in the shadows there was always the public and the private greeting um, which maybe is not quite something the same in northern Europe Caesar began to just ignore these social platitudes um, and he began to ignore this Latin social economy and as I said he began to behave like a rex, rex quando. And also, so what happened is that the tribunes, I suppose the tribunes are like uh, the sort of private secretaries of the, of the, of Caesar, began to hunt down and imprison people who began to declare him a rex, a king, because it, it was an ultimate affront to the institution of Caesar. 
And he is, he sees it, didn't really like that. It didn't like that very much. And in turn, he threw the tribunes in prison for imprisoning people, for calling him a king, um, which, you know, set uh, the cat among the pigeons or it absolutely was, it was an absolute, you know, tabloid, red tabloid headline disgrace that Caesar had thrown the tribunes in prison. And because Rome and the Roman Empire prided itself on being a republic and that was its definitions of um, and obedience to uh, democracy and to, I suppose, the institution, early institutions of liberty and rule of law as opposed to rule by divine or right of inheritance, which, you know, a lot of um, Europe in the 15th century, what well, we spoke about before, rather I rambled before about the new feudalism. The feudalist state was one that was ruled by divine inheritance or inheritance through bloodline or royal family monarchy. But it, 1500 years previously, 1800 years previously, the Roman Empire had done away with that and declared itself a republic, which is what we, in theory, model our democratic or, well, right now, not quite so democratic, but our democratic states upon that and, of course, the Greeks before them. But all of this was happening at the time when there was this crazy religious festival, a fertility festival called Lupercalia, um, which I think is ripe for a black metal band to write an album about Lupercalia. It's ripe. You can have it. There's an idea for you where men would gather in caves and um, perform fertility rites, naked, covered in blood, running through the streets with thorns, um, whipping the legs of passersby. And Mark Anthony, you might know his name. Um, I suppose, was he the man who turned Cleopatra's head or am I way off the mark? Anyway, Mark Anthony, no doubt played by some um, handsome actor in the 1950s, the kind of chiseled men they don't make anymore. What am I talking about? Anyway, and the Lupercalian festival gathering ends up on the forum floor with Caesar seated in his golden chair looking down at them and Mark Anthony produces a diadem a diadem, which is a crown. The diadem of 12 stars produces a crown and offers it to Caesar to place on his head. And the crowd who are gathered to watch the final moments of the Lupercalian festival, do they boo? Do they cheer? Do they boo? Do they cheer? Caesar toys with the idea of putting on this crown, puts it on, takes it off, puts it on, takes it off. A little doff of the cap. Um, got to pick a pocket or two. And the crowd doesn't react positively they boo but yet Caesar has kind of second guessed them played them a bit by not fully accepting the the message the offering but the idea that Caesar is more or less taking on the attributes of a king becomes more and more embedded in the Senate the Senate is 900 strong and so they say 30 to 60 men, 30 to 60 senators were among the conspirators, which when you think about it really is quite a large number of the Senate. And they are, um, they're a superstitious bunch, the Romans, to say the least. And they often go by omens. They often go by spilling the guts of an animal and reading its entrails. But the omens for, as I said off the top of this, beware, beware the Ides of March, as the soothsayer said, to Caesar when he was walking to the forum that day. The omens for Caesar were ill, ill omens. 
And so that that fateful day when Caesar was to be sent to the other underworld, I suppose the three main conspirators, the men who smuggled daggers in in their togas, were Marcus Brutus, Cassius Longinus, and Decimus Brutus. There are three black metal names for your project, Lupercalia. Mark my words. And Decimus Brutus, the main man behind the act, was the descendant of the Brutus who had supposedly killed the King Tarquin before and enshrined on his tomb, on his on the family tomb, was the idea that someday um, a son of this or a descendant of this would commit the same act. Maybe I've made that bit up, but something of those words. Um, kill the king, kill the king. And the decision was made to murder him in public because deposing of political, um, let's say, tyrants or would-be mini-tyrants who would attempt to ascend to the level of, um, you know, divine rule within the Roman state were very often killed in public. This was a way of deposing, of a ruthless way of deposing them, but it was not done in private, in secret, as an act of murder. It was done as an act of saving the Republic. Um, and so, beware, beware, the Ides of March, et tu Brutus, Caesar declared as Brutus plunged the dagger within his breast and deposed of the would-be tyrant king and returned Rome to its republic. Well, there you go. There's the first ramblings of episode 48 because it somehow ties into some of the things that we've been t I've been talking about in the last few episodes. Um, the idea that somehow right now we are living through a moment where, as I said before, democracy seems paused, civil liberty seems suspended, and there seems to be an incredible um, grab for wealth and power. Now, quite how, what, how malign, what is malign and what is benign remains to be seen, but it strikes me that um, we in the West do not recognize the soft patter of authoritarian feet as they slowly envelop society. Because the idea that once these things are suspended, that people don't, or people in positions of aspiring authority don't rush in to fill the gap because they see a, a gap in the market which they can fill. And many men would uh, brush off their uniforms and put them on and think, I could add a few more stripes to this uniform during this situation. Um, is it because we've had too many spoilt decades in the sun and we've lost our connection to understanding what authoritarianism means, what tyranny means, what democracy itself means? I mean, democracy as a concept is only really 170 years old. And if you look back through history, you will see that it is not the default setting of society, as I said somewhere about 20 million years ago in a podcast at last September or August. It isn't the default setting of society. I think that we've been lulled into a full sense of narcissistic security by our um, our clinging to the ankles of social media to sort of protect us from maybe understanding. It's 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 as if we're in some uh, in some sort of. Um, it is like social media is the Grimer worm tongue to our King Theoden. Um, for all you Lord of the Rings nerds out there, there's the reference you've been waiting for. 
social media has almost made us blind to these things as they slowly creep up around us, at least how it seems or it appears. It appears to me we are worry. We worry about um, the mini microaggressions of words when around us, it would seem that the creeping hand of authoritarianism is, well, we're sleepwalking into it, perhaps. Why would you say that, Alan? Well, I mean, you know, a few things have happened in the last week. We see, and I'll use them as examples, um, you know, to step off Caesar's, um, allow me to step up to Caesar's golden uh, chair and place that diadem um, on my baldy pate. Um, I mean, look, you have in Scotland a hate speech law that essentially is looking to criminalise what you say in your own home. Um, and the fact that it got so far and might even be passed is absolutely incredible. You see uh, the English government and the Irish government talking about the same, about introducing new laws to ban protest. Um, noisy protests, unruly protests, um, protests that will affect or traffic or whatever else. You know that they've been brought in under the rubric of trying to deal with Extinction Rebellion, but that's not really, I think, what they're about at all. They are an attempt to remove people's inalienable right to protest. And you can see that even within uh, within Ireland as well. A new expediency laws to try and remove the uh, people's ability to gather. And that is one of the cornerstones of a so-called democratic society. People's ability to gather and hold those in positions of power to account, um, to gather, to discuss, to protest. But these are things that are slowly being removed. You have... Um, the Home Secretary in England giving, um, you know, with expedient powers to define and abolish any example of protest. If this isn't a signpost on the road to authoritarianism, I don't know. Now, Alan, it could just be benign and something that never gets enforced. But, you know, these things, rules like these were, Blair attempted to introduce rules like these uh, 20 years ago, and there was huge public pushback. And yet now, little little public pushback and why is that is it because the grime or worm tongue of our social media has just completely distracted us all and we're all standing in the street just looking at our phones while a heist has gone on in broad daylight maybe or maybe I've just gone mad I don't know but certainly different sections of society are slowly beginning to wonder how wonder about their place within all this. You saw the terrible violence at the, you know, or the violence at the Women's March in London. And I'm not going to speak to that much, but I will say that a certain section of uh, social society all of a sudden maybe realised the levels of authoritarianism and powers that have been granted to the state have crept up unknowingly around them also. And I think that's kind of what's going to happen is that every, because I suppose society is imbued with this element of selfishness to think, well, I'm all right with my with my little lot in life. So really, I mean, come on, Alan, will you stop going on about freedom of speech and freedom of expression? Really, will you stop? All right. Art. Is that art really important? Or will you stop? I stop giving out. But look, hey, this is a called Agitators Anonymous. The clue is in the name, right? What was somebody going to expect? I don't know. Maybe maybe I should do one just about recipes um, or gardening. Two things of which I enjoy quite a lot, cooking and gardening. So maybe it might be on the cards. Anyway, my point is, DM me for some family recipes. No, my point is that um, I think that 
the situation that we're in until it bumps up right up against certain sections of society when they realize, as I've often said before in the podcast about censorship or something like this, when people um, censorship is only something that they really want to deal with when it comes for their writer, their band, their author, their radio station, their YouTube channel, the channels that they like when it's something they don't like. They're generally like, ah, you know, whatever, who cares that they got rid of all those people that I kind of disliked or disagreed with or maybe assumed I did but didn't really pay much attention to their content. And both sides of the divide are guilty of the same thing. But as I said before, the idea within a um, within a healthy democracy is that you defend the right of the people you oppose to have their point of view because you want to reach consensus. But of course, at the at the current moment, most people want to win. They don't want consensus. And so sh- that's why, part of why we're in the mess that we're in, I think. But all of these things creep up and slowly they will bump up against elements of society who maybe thought they were immune, who maybe didn't believe really that they they put down, say, someone like, well, you know, who put down the words like authoritarianism as being scaremongering or being too much. Um, And they just think that that's just the preserve of cranks and conspiracy theorists and all that kind of thing. But then it, it does bump up against them and they are now, I think, in the position after a year of having to reconsider their position and wondering, well... Could it really be? Could could there be some truth in these things? Well, now, that's kind of up to all of you to decide. Um, I'm just throwing out my hypotheticals. Um, you know, this is my struggle stroke therapy session. So you're all invited to that. Or not invited, as the case may be. But like I said, certainly it's clear to me that the idea that um, we lean into the romanticism and nostalgia of musicians of the past or authors or poets that it was quite fine for, um, I don't know, Sid Vicious to be outspoken in 1977, but in my own small, tiny way to, you know, throw out a political ideal that somebody kind of mildly balks at and goes, oh, God, typical blah, 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 but yet would lean into the mythology of people who... um, made their careers out of being outspoken I think is um, somewhat pathetic and pithy but hey that's again the grammar warm tongue that's clouding people's um, minds it's you know clouding their vision when it comes to actually considering the worth of freedom of speech freedom of expression all those kind of things my dear Caesar you disrespect the senators anyway and then we have this, imagine the little moment of um, the the little respite is March the 16th and March the 17th we have St. Patrick's Day. Well, well, well. St. Patrick's Day, what the fuck is that about? Really? How strange, how strange that a nation as small as Ireland would have f- created a festival around the world that was celebrated with parades from New York to Moscow to um, Rio to wherever. Um I mean, look, it's just an excuse to really go on the piss, to get drunk. But how strange it shows the um, it, it's proof of the incredible um, Irish diaspora throughout the world. They often say our best and our brightest left, um, which is one of the reasons why um, you might see an awful lot of uh, social movements, political movements, bands, authors maybe didn't appear in Ireland in the 50s, 60s. And especially especially counterculture or 
1960s. I would I would argue the Ireland didn't really have a late 60s so much, and certainly between 77 and 83, 84. Um, when the rest of the world was exploding with, you know, from Black Flag to Joy Division to Depeche Mode to, you know, Venom or whatever, Ireland wasn't really doing much. Now, why was that? Was that because the people who could have maybe pushed and shoved in that direction were off living in the UK, off in Australia, in the USA, trying to make their fortune? I don't know. It's something worth returning to. And I've probably talked about it in a podcast nine months um, and 32 light years ago but I can't really remember it's possible but how is it that such a small nation has given the world a festival that it celebrates and I would have to, I would ask um, considering the the nature of the festival which is really just a complete uh, piss up it's just an excuse to get drunk that it so heavily leans into the cliche the world has of Irish people how is St. Patrick's Day not defined as cultural appropriation well I don't know I leave that up to you to figure that one out but surely uh, it is and I don't think anyone could really point to the history of the Irish as being anything of privilege read Thomas Sowell's account of the Irish for some rather heartbreaking and grim facts Um, certainly not so how is that not defined as cultural appropriation Alan would you shut up complaining about stuff yeah you have a point anyway how weird it was and how strange it was to witness um, on one side of the city here on a bright sunshiny Dublin day for the second St. Patrick's Day that had been cancelled um, people drinking on the canal and yet half a kilometre or a kilometre away um, protesters um, hemmed into some small uh, park and by the police police everywhere around the city centre stopping people coming in um, and it all passed off with barely a whimper, really, despite the newspapers and media trumpeting that it was going to be um, another day of protests and violence across the cities. It wasn't. It was a very strange day whereby you saw people out trying to do their best to try and cope um, in the sunshine with uh, some form of human contact in this in this anti-human situation that we're in. And yet, on the other side of the city ph- phalanxes of uh, policemen and people protesting very odd and seemed to sort of sum up the strange nature of where we are right now um, with as many people I suppose just keeping the heads down trying to get through it or rather people just trying to get out the other side of this um, but you know if you've been listening to the podcast um, for the last few weeks few months as a, my you know, my grey matter is unwound like um, some sort of old spiralizer or something. Well, there's a modern reference for the kids. Uh, spiralizer. What the hell is that? That's one of those little things you put on the stairs that goes down the stairs and spirals. Yeah, that's what we did for fun in the 80s as kids. Um, stood at the bottom of the stairs and somebody else stood at the top and watched a little spiralizer worm stringy thing go down the stairs. What a time we had. What a time we had. Wasn't time for thinking about recession and uh, your Instagram likes there then when there was that much fun to be had and then you'd go outside and uh, beat the dog with a stick or whatever. Anyway, what am I talking about? Yeah, it's um, the strange contradiction of a second St. Patrick's Day in lockdown was quite profound. Most of the people in the streets um, sort of wandering around with green leprechaun hats. Uh, it seemed It seemed very, very incongruous, very strange sight to the situation that, that we were in um, it's confused South Americans wandering around with Irish flags with faces painted green and empty streets with no Irish people in them I don't know 
it seemed strangely poignant um, and also tragicomic at the same time. And I mean, just for the record, of course, if you hadn't already guessed, if I hadn't mentioned it before, I mean, the idea of cultural appropriation to me just, just seems so intellectually redundant. It's such, it's got such awfully segregationist tones to it. It's got a sort of str horrible sort of post-colonial feeling to it, this sort of stay in your lane the idea, I mean, if it's taken to its logical effect, logical, most logical, well, it's a logical logicality or whatever you want to call it, is that, you know, you shouldn't learn another language. Is learning another language? Is that problematic? I don't know. Uh, making other, you know, uh, making other. I'm going to give you a, a good example. Some um, rather silly Irish person posted a tweet saying that um, people should stop um, recommending the Mediterranean diet as it was somehow uh, an example of white supremacy. I kid you not. And this got some sort of serious traction and it was shared among people who obviously saw it for the ridiculousness that it is. Because if there's one place on earth that is an ultimate melting pot of traditions, of cultures, of ethnicities, of ethnicities it is of course the Mediterranean. Um, as different empires moved and shifted. And even as I talked about um, the Roman Empire at the start of this, the Roman Empire was in North Africa. There was spices moving. There was people moving in this great basin of the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean diet couldn't be furthest away from what that person claimed it was. It's a mixture of all sorts of things. Um, and therefore, in a sense, the complete opposite of what cultural appropriation preaches or teaches us that the Greeks should stay in the Greek lane and the Tunisians in their lane and the Moroccans in their lane and whoever else. It's of course palpable nonsense because the history of humanity is movement. Of course it is and it is the melding of cultures and it is all those kind of things. So the idea of the idea itself, the concept cultural appropriation fundamentally should be positive to mix all of these things together. It just leaves me on the shore, this kind of rationality and reasoning. But I get it. It's just a, it's just a, you know, it's just a stick to beat the dog with. Anyway, what am I talking about? The reason I started talking about the Roman Empire and about Caesar um, was because I thought, you know, it's a bit of a smart arse way to paint some sort of rather blunt for blunt head trauma metaphor for perhaps a little bit of what's going on now as I mentioned two podcasts ago the idea that some elements of this situation that we're in are being used to implement a form of new feudalism i.e. Um, the destruction of let's say the upwardly mobile working class and to put to create this universal basic income servile um, lower class um, which would, in a sense, you could say is a new feudalism. And of course, what did the Roman Republic do? But it banished the idea of monarchy hundreds of years before um, Europe was still stuck in that same situation. And it was a way of creating, as I said, some sort of blunt force trauma metaphor about how within the situation within this situation, um, as I said, many people are rushing in to fill the gap. There's a grab, like a sort of supermarket dash or whatever you call that thing where somebody on some TV program gets the trolley and runs through the supermarket, just piles everything in. Because everything is 
closed and suspended. There are certain elements of society, whether it is tech or whatever, that is booming online sales. And they're that and a mixture of, I suppose, little mini, mini tyrants are rushing in to fill the gap with authoritarian ideals, aspirations. And because they've had no one to answer to, I mean, like I said before, there's been over 60 laws, new laws passed in the UK. I mean, our government here has given the police however many new laws um, and they don't have sunset clauses and they weren't put before the floor for debate, etc., and nor were any of the, nor were the people asked about the situation that they're in, which, you know, um, all of these things are, I suppose, would have been elements of traditional, a traditional democratic state that respected civil liberty. Uh, stop talking about liberty, Alan, blah, blah, blah. But, but do we see elements of um, this une unelected um, technocratic elite who seem to be making decisions for us? Do we see elements of that as taking on the trait the traits of a of a rex of a of a caesar who wishes to be king uh, to change the form of the republic to remove democracy it's hard right now not to see that as some as potentially happening in the background again of course you know as i said a million times you know you sit inside watch your screen take in the information that you do it's very hard to not get played by the algorithm in your own sense of outrage but the longer the time goes, the more people I find um, you welcome to the conversation as the situation bumps up against them and they go, oh, right. Remember that thing you said four or five months ago? Right. Do you, do, do you really think that could be happening? I don't know. It could be. And so. And so I would say, pick who you feel to be your Caesar and wonder, do they meet their Brutus, their et tu Brutus? episode 48 huh well over on my youtube channel um i realize now after 40 minutes today of rambling straight off uh, my dusty cuff that um i haven't rolled out any of the ads any of the socials my brain is mush but i would say go and follow me on instagram nemthiang underscore primordial for my rather dull adventures um but that can't be helped for now um go over there and take a peek on YouTube, there is some things happening now and again on my channel. I post some videos. I have this thing called Call from the Grave where I'm doing um, video retrospectives of a few bands. I have a few in the in the barrel ready to go. I also have a whole lot of interviews with people. I've been stockpiling, ready to go. And they are going to all come out in a while. And they're all videocast interviews. There's been Nick Barker, comedian Steve Hughes, um, all sorts of people. So maybe take a look over there. As always... Um, www.hatecouture hate as in I hate you c-o-u-t-u-r-e 616.com um, where they have all sorts of uh, t tasteless nasty um, evil evil apparel t-shirts of that venerate tyrants and dictators uh, which seems odd enough considering what I've just been talking about but you know it's got some gallows humour to it um, go over there and use the use the promo code AA podcast and you will get uh, free shipping, which, you know, these days is pretty good considering how much it costs to post a vinyl to places. Believe me, the new Dread Sovereign, and I thank you if you've bought one from me, um, is flying out of our band camp. Um, I can't keep it in stock, but the postage from um, Ireland to places, it almost makes um, doing some form of business through the post um, kind of pointless. Um, 
which of course feeds into your conspiracy theories about Amazon and all that kind of thing. Anyway, no, we won't get into that. Um, et tu, Bezos. Et tu, Bezos. Or whoever you may you may wish to insert into your um, into those red knee-high boots of the Rex Monday. Um, yeah, so go over and follow me on those kind of things, and also, you know, drop me lines of things if you of things you may w w think that I should consider or talk about. And especially, I do want to say uh, thank you for the amount of numbers all the time. It keeps growing and growing and growing exponentially. Um, and I, just every day, you know, um, I, I look at the statistics as a, I mean, I have little else to do, so I might as well. I'm also autistically fascinated by numbers. Um, so I'm quite all over, all over the statistics. And yeah, the numbers just keep moving and moving. So thank you for that. But I do say if you do like the podcast, um, send it to somebody to recommend it to them, link it to them, send it to them to listen to, because that's kind of how these things grow through word of mouth. Um, somebody who may appreciate it don't try not to send it to somebody who you know is, is going to hate it and then they're going to DM me with something grumpy um, complaining about all the things that I'm talking about or or do <laughs> what what what's what else is going to happen um, I may be removed from the town square and sent to the stocks so you can all throw rotten fruit at me and um, well we'll see maybe when I get to episode 100 um, or let's say episode 500 when we're still in the same position that we're in. Anyway, so, my friends, the Ides of March rolled into St. Patrick's Day. Imagine it. Anyway, episode 48 of Agitators Anonymous is the end of the rambling trifecta of insanity and doom and gloom. If you're starting right here, go back to the last two and then you'll see what's been happening. And now for the next few weeks, the next month or something, I think it's going to be heavy metal talk. It's going to be music talk. I'm doing uh, some YouTube stuff about some very simple and brutal situations the music industry might find itself in and live music. Um, I mean, i.e., as I've said before, if distancing stays, ain't no gigs happening. Um, and I'm just going to be expanding on that theory amongst other things because I've, I've been speaking to quite a few industry people. There's some other musicians coming on, etc., etc. All right, my friends. Hold the line. Episode 48 of Agitators Anonymous. Metal never bends. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.